Well, brothers and sisters, in our study of Mark's gospel, we have examined many of the marvelous and powerful deeds that were done by Jesus. Jesus said when he uh, came, he said, the kingdom of God has come. He, he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And we have seen many of the manifestations of, of divine and kingdom power in Jesus. We've seen crippled people that were made to spring to their feet, blind people given sight, grotesque lepers cleansed, those who were possessed by demons to the point of near self-destruction, delivered by a mere word from Jesus. A raging storm turned into a placid sea by simple words, peace, be still. And his mere words were enough to infuse life in bodies that had died. More recently, we focused on the sufferings of Jesus as they come to a climax. Near the end of his life, he comes into Jerusalem. He makes himself vulnerable to his enemies. He allows himself to be arrested. Then he is subjected to great legal injustices, cruel bodily torture, Verbal mockery from both the Jews and the Romans. And those sufferings end in his death, what the Apostle Paul calls even the death of a cross. And last week we learned that the lifeless, limp body of Jesus was taken down from the cross and by an amazing providence came to be laid in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph had been previously a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, but at this point he comes forth and boldly identifies himself as a follower of Jesus by asking Pilate for the body, which he then takes down with help, prepares for burial, and buries that body of Jesus in his own tomb. We saw that the preparations needed to be hasty because the Sabbath was fast approaching at 6 p.m., but they got it done in time. And so the body of Jesus of Nazareth now lies, not only stone cold dead in the tomb, but enveloped in yards and yards of linen wrapped tightly around his, his uh, arms and legs and around the torso of his body. And within all of those linen wrappings, a hundred pounds of spices, according to Jewish burial custom. His head was covered with a separate cloth. As he lay on a slab of rock hewn out of the side of the inner chamber of the tomb, the tomb is then sealed by a large stone. Now, friends, had the body of Jesus Christ remained in that condition and been left to decay like all other bodies, we could have written him off as just another self-deceived religious zealot, another one falsely claiming to be the Messiah, as there were many before Jesus, and there would be those who would come after him. We could have concluded that he was just either a deceiving liar or a deranged lunatic of a man. But the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth did not remain occupied by his body. It became an empty tomb. And whereas there were no human witnesses to his actual resurrection, we have in the Gospels, an angelic revelation of what happened, and we do have human witnesses to the fact of the resurrection. And the empty tomb itself 
is a powerful, eloquent testimony to the truth of the resurrection. We come to Mark 15. I'm going to read from verse 47 of 15 to verse 8 of chapter 16. That'll be our text for this morning. The end of chapter 15, and in the original Greek, there were no chapter or verse divisions. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Probably better, they were terrified. And he said to them, do not be amazed, do not fear, do not be terrified. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he had told you. They went out and fled from the tomb. Trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We're going to see three simple things this morning. We're going to see coming to the tomb, being in the tomb, and then leaving the tomb. First, coming to the tomb. Reading again another portion. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see. These were two of the three women that are mentioned having been at the crucifixion. And after the crucifixion, And after he's taken down, they follow to see where he is buried. And then when the Sabbath is over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Coming to the tomb. Well, who were the persons who came to the tomb? Well, there were three persons mentioned here coming to the tomb. And they are all women. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Another Mary, the mother of James. And then a Salome, who we know to be the wife of Zebedee and the mother of the apostles, James and John. Now, these women had figured prominently in the closing events of Jesus' life. When all ten disciples had fled and were not at the crucifixion, only John was at the crucifixion, these women were there. They were at the crucifixion. We read in chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. They had been devoted followers of Jesus for a long time during his lengthy ministry in the Galilean region. And they continued their devotion to Jesus right up until the end of his life. And though doubt enduring it with broken hearts, they were there to behold the crucifixion. But friends, their devotion to Jesus did not end with his death. Their devotion goes beyond that. As they find out, they follow to find out where he's buried because they have a plan and they have a purpose. So consider the purpose 
and time of their coming to the tomb. And their purpose and the timing of it go together. Why were these women, why did they want to see where Jesus was buried? Because they had a plan, a plan to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. And so it says very early, extremely early on the first day of the week, they head out for the tomb. Now it says they bought spices in order to anoint the body of Jesus. Now Luke tells us that as soon as they left the crucifixion, they began to prepare spices. But apparently they didn't have enough. And because you couldn't buy or sell on the Sabbath, they had to wait till after the Sabbath. They bought the additional spices they needed, and then they proceed to the tomb of Jesus. What was their purpose? The Jews did not use these spices for the purpose of mummification like the Egyptians did. The spices served the purpose of offsetting odors from the decomposition of the body. Now you say, what's the sense of that? Nobody's going to be in the tomb with the body. It's going to decay anyway. So why bring spices that offset the odor of decay? Well, evidently, it was being done as an act of devotion to the body of Jesus. They were honoring the body of Jesus. It was done to honor the deceased. Why were they coming very early in the morning? John says they headed out while it was still dark. Well, under that Mideastern sun with the heat, the bodies would decay quickly. And so they wanted to get there before the decay would be such that the stench would be unbearable. And so these women were coming to the tomb to anoint with aromatic oils the body of Jesus out of their devotion and love for him. Now consider the apprehensions of these women in coming to the tomb as they came. Verse 3 says their only question, their only apprehension was, who's going to move the stone? It was large enough that three women were confident they would not be able to remove the stone from the tomb. Remember, it was a cylindrical stone, kind of like a millstone. It was placed in a groove that was cut in front of of the tomb, and it was rolled in, leaning against the tomb. It was an extremely large stone. These women despaired of moving it themselves. That was their only question. How are we going to move the stone? But look at the devotion of these women. Early in the morning, while it's still dark, they've prepared spices. They're going to a tomb where there's a decomposing body, knowing that the stone needed to be removed. What love, what devotion these women had for Jesus. But consider now being at the tomb, what happens when they get there. Verse 4 says, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. At one, some point, they got close enough in the early morning light, and they saw, oh, the, the stone has already been moved. That, that was our big question. How are we going to move that stone? It's already been moved. Now, that would have been, on the one hand, a relief to them, but it also must have created a bit of wonder. How did that stone get removed? And then we have this confrontation with this young man we know to be an angel. Verse 5, entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And I think that word is better translated terrified. They were afraid. They see this young man, originally, according to the gospel accounts, he's sitting on the stone, and then he comes to be sitting inside the tomb. And Matthew describes him this way, says, It was an angel of the Lord, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Luke describes two angels in dazzling apparel. 
So the women meet this young man. Sometimes angels appeared in the form of men and young men, and that was the case here. But in reality, they were angels. The angels had been God's instrument to remove the stone, as has been said, not so that Jesus could come out. Why was the stone removed? It was removed to, first of all, terrify the Roman soldiers who then fled the scene, and it was to provide a revelation to those who were visiting the tomb as to what had happened and why the tomb was empty. And their response was to be alarmed or amazed. And um, that word is the same word used to describe Jesus' emotions in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14.33, it says, in the garden, he began to be very distressed and troubled. That first word, distressed, is our word here. And so I think it's better translated terror. Jesus was terrified. He was fearful. He sweat drops of blood. And these women, upon seeing this and seeing this, and these angelic beings were terrified. I mean, that was not an everyday experience, even back then. That was not a once-in-a-lifetime experience to see an angelic being. But the angel was not there to frighten and to terrify He's there for another reason. And so we see the revelation given by the angel in verses 6 and 7. And he, the young man, who we know to be an angel, said to them, do not be amazed or do not be terrified. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee There you will see him, just as he told you. The first thing the young man or the angel does is he calms the fears of these women and he comforts them. Do not be amazed. Actually, the imperative tense in the Greek indicates stop being terrified. They were terrified. And he says, stop being terrified. There's no need to be terrified. We're not here as your enemies. We're here as your friends. You know, Hebrews 1.14 tells us the purpose of angels, that they are ministering spirits sent for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. To God's people, angels are not enemies. They're not friends. It was not their intent to terrify these women. And so the first thing the angel or the angels do is to allay their fears. Don't be terrified. But then the angel gives... And just the fact that one gospel says there are two angels and the other says one, that, that's not a contradiction. Mark chooses to focus on one angel. It doesn't deny the fact that there were two angels. You recognize that, right? But the angel gives this explanation. First, he knows why they have come. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. In other words, he's saying to them, look, you got the right man in your right place. You haven't come to the wrong tomb This is the place where Jesus, the crucified one, was was laid. You got the right person and the right place. And then the angel gives them the good news. He has risen. He has risen from being in a state of death. And as a result of that, he is not here. He's no longer lying on that, that slab bound in linen cloths. Behold the place where they laid him. And what they would have seen is described by us by the apostle John. Linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Very specific details. They wanted us to know 
that the, 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 all the wrappings and the hundred pounds of spices are, are lying there, empty a body. And over here in another place is the face cloth. And then the angels give the instructions to these women. What are the instructions? But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. Now that they know what has happened, they need to know what they need to do with this good news. And note the language. Go tell his disciples and Peter. What did that insinuate? That Peter was not a disciple anymore? Go and tell his disciples and also Peter. Peter had grievously denied Jesus with cursings and swearing, saying, I don't know the man. And was this message intended to say, tell the disciples, but also tell, tell Peter, who's no longer my disciple. He was a disciple, but now he's a denier. That's what Peter might have thought. I'm not worthy anymore, any longer to be his disciple, because I denied him grievously three times with cursings and swearing, saying, I don't even know him. But dear friends, that's not the purpose of this message from the angels, ultimately from the Lord Christ. He's not saying, go tell the disciples and Peter, who's no longer a disciple. It's not the heart of our Savior. Go tell the disciples. But I have a special message for Peter. And what we have behind that is the tender merciful, forgiving heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had already forgiven Peter, his penitent follower, and was intending to express restoration and even recommission Peter as a disciple. It's so typical of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it, as we see him presented in the Gospels, one who's filled with compassion, willing to save the brokenhearted, the helpless, the hopeless, when they repent. And this directive to meet him in Galilee recalls what he had actually told them at the Last Supper. Going back to chapter 14, 27, and 28, he had already predicted this on the occasion of the Last Supper. He says in that passage, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That was fulfilled. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so the angel says, go to Galilee, just like he told you. He's going to meet you in Galilee. And then finally, in terms of exposition, leaving the tomb, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Consider the emotional reaction of the women as they leave the tomb, they hear these words of the angel and they flee from the tomb. The adrenaline is pumping through them. The word trembling is the Greek word traumas from which we, and the verb tremo from which we get tremor and trembling. The word astonishment is ecstasis or ecstasis from which we get the word ecstasy. It means to have your mind thrown out of its normal state, a state of blended fear and wonder. Twice in the book of Acts, that word is actually translated trance. Well, consider what these women had just experienced. 
They come to the tomb and they're shocked to see this large stone, which they were despairing of moving, having already moved from the entrance of the tomb. Then they see this supernatural being, this angel in dazzling white apparel. He announces to them that the body of Jesus they had come to anoint was not there because he had risen. And the proof is his grave clothes are lying there, but absent the body. I don't know if you ever heard of Harry Houdini. He was an escape artist in the early part of the 20th century. I read his biography. An amazing man. They put him in a trunk and they put chains around it. They drop him in 15, 20 feet of water and he would emerge from that. I mean, he was a, a, a masterful escape artist. But as they're looking at 100 pounds of spices and linen wrappings, surely they're thinking there's no way that this man, even if he was alive within, could have extricated himself from those wrappings, from those grave clothes. And they see the grave clothes as proof that he's not here. And they had not been thinking of the possibility that Jesus was risen from the dead. Had they heard him as the other disciples did, his prediction on the third day I will rise? Maybe they had, but they had not internalized it any more than the disciples had. They were not expecting a resurrection. And so there was a mental and emotional overload that resulted in them being in a state of astonishment and fear. Now, to get the full picture, Matthew tells us, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. And they ran to report to his disciples. So something terrifyingly wonderful had just happened and been experienced by them. And then we have the verbal silence of the women. It says, as they left, they said nothing. Why was that? Well, some speculate that they didn't want to get blamed for taking the body, but it could be that they were just so overwhelmed with emotion that it rendered them speechless. And then, that's as far as Mark tells us, but we can presume the obedience of the women. Though they were silent for a time, they broke that silence we know that they delivered the message, Luke tells us, and they remembered his, the angel's words, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. But Mark does not tell us. Now, in some of your Bibles, that's where the Gospel of Mark ends. If you have a King James or New King James, you have verses 9 to 20. There's, there are textual variants, and we're going to have to deal with that, but right now, I just want to take this passage and make some applications before we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's get some doctrine and some practical lessons from this portion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first thing, brothers and sisters, is recognize that the scriptures, and particularly Jesus, do not demean but exalt women. And I made the point last week, I want to make it again because we have further information here. You know, ever since second wave feminism, which happened when? Maybe in the 70s. Many have viewed Christianity and the Bible as demeaning to women, as treating women as being in the shadow of their husbands and, and second-class citizens. They have reacted to the words of the Bible, wives be subject to your husbands. I can remember doing weddings in the late 1980s and 1990s and when I might quote that or mention that the wife's duty was to be submissive to their husbands, I could see the faces of some. They did not like it. We might have even had a lady walk out. She did not want to hear that. 
in that age of feminism and, and thinking that the Bible's treating women in a demeaning way. One thing they miss is the fact that God commands the husband to love the wife as Christ loves the church, which is a selfless, sacrificial, servant-oriented love. That's not hard to submit to. They often miss that. But the husband has to be like Christ in loving his wife. That's the kind of husband the wife is called to submit to. They miss that. But they also miss the honor that Jesus Christ showed to women. I mentioned last time that the rabbis in that day would not have women in their entourage following them. Jesus had women consistently in his entourage following him. And as it says in the previous text, ministering to him. He broke with the culture. He was counterculture in having women included. He esteemed women. He valued women. And they loved their Lord. Charles Spurgeon makes an interesting point. He says, we have no record of any unkindness to our Lord from any woman, though we have many narratives of the living ministry of women of various periods in his life. Jesus here honors womankind by having women be the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And you know what's especially noteworthy about that? A woman's testimony in that day was not valued in court. But Jesus had women be the first witnesses to his resurrection from the dead. You know what it is also? It's a compelling truth, a compelling proof of the truth of Christianity. Let's suppose the disciples wanted to make this all up and invent the idea that Jesus had been resurrected, even though he hadn't been. So they're going to say, yeah, Jesus is resurrected. He's raised from the dead, as he predicted. And we have witnesses. These women, wait a minute, that, that wouldn't fly in that culture. If they were going to make it up, they wouldn't have women be the first witnesses to it because that wouldn't carry any credibility. And so it's a further proof of the truth of Christianity that these women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And then secondly, understand that God's transcendence produces fear and amazement in mortals. Here's just another illustration of the fact that when mortal men and women, such as we all are, are confronted with the divine and with the supernatural, they are struck with terror and amazement. We've seen it throughout the gospel narrative. We see amazement and sometimes fear when Jesus calms the storm, when he casts out demons, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's transfigured, the disciples are terrified. The thunderings on Mount Sinai, when God reveals his holiness, cause the people to tremble. Isaiah, when he sees a vision of God, which according to John 12 is really a vision of Christ, high and lifted up, he's on his face as one who is undone. The Apostle John falls on his face in the book of Revelation when he has a vision of Jesus Mary fears when the angel Gabriel comes to her. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is gripped with fear of an angel. The shepherds, when angels appear to them to announce the birth of Jesus, it says they are terribly frightened. Whenever men and women, even godly ones, are confronted with manifestations of the divine, of the supernatural, of the holy, of the presence of God in an immediate sense, their response is fear and amazement. 
And brothers and sisters, we need to recover some of that in our day, even in Christian churches. We often lose a sense of awe and majesty and have an over-familiarity with God. Now, it's true. Through Jesus Christ, we can come boldly into his presence. Bold, as the hymn says, I approach the eternal throne. Because our sins are forgiven. We have a bold confidence to come to God through Jesus Christ. And yet, there still needs to be a reverence mingled with joy. That's why in our worship, shouldn't it always be our goal to have our worship characterized both by joy and celebration, but also with awe and reverence. We don't want to lose either. But if you're sitting here and you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, let me just say something to you. Your fear of God ought to be a dread fear of God. If you're not a believer, Because the Bible says it is is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you don't have a Savior, if you don't have your sins forgiven, it is an absolutely terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible actually presents in the book of Revelation men crying out to the mountains and hills to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb who sits on the throne. It is so terrifying. And if you... Stand before God in your sins. Without the salvation that is in Jesus, you will face a terrifying judgment. And let me share with you a beautiful illustration of the place of safety. I've shared it at least a few years before. Out west, there are prairie fires. And apparently these prairie fires are unstoppable. They just sweep down the plain. And if your house is in the path of one of those prairie fires. The the best way to escape, they found, is to burn around your house so that when the prairie fire comes, it will not burn up your home, but it will burn around it. Why? Because that area has already been burned, and it's not going to burn it again. Jesus Christ is that place of safety where the fire of God's wrath has already come down and burned Jesus, and he has suffered for our sins. And if you come to Jesus, you stand in him. And so when the fire of God's wrath comes, it will not burn you. It will burn around you because your sins have already been punished in Jesus. So if you're not a believer, the dread fear of God ought to be real to you, but it ought to drive you to the Savior in the place of safety, the cross. But then, friends, be comforted that for believers in Jesus, all basis for dread fear of God has been removed. Why did the angel say to these women, don't be terrified? You have no reason for dread fear. And for the believer in Jesus, we have no dread fear of God. Why? Because Jesus drank up all the wrath that we deserved, and there's not a drop left for us, only the smile of God. So we don't cower from God with dread fear, but still we do need to have the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. But for us, it is awe. And it's really coupled with other things like love and obedience. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 12, where God tells his Old Testament people, now Israel, what does the Lord require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, but what does that go with? To walk in all his ways, to love him, 
and to serve the Lord your God with all your your soul. For us, the fear of God shouldn't terrify us. It shouldn't drive us away from God, but it should draw us to him because we so stand in awe of his holiness, his beauty, his perfection, and we want to be like him. There's a verse in Psalm 130, there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. We reverence him because he has forgiven us. He's become our father. But then another lesson, I have just two more. Believe the forgiving love and tender mercy of Jesus for repentant sinners. How thoroughly Peter had denied Jesus. How crudely and crassly he had denied him with cursings and swearing. I don't know the man. How painful that would have been to the heart of Jesus as Jesus walked across the courtyard and his eyes met Peter's and he knew what Peter had done. How that would have hurt the heart of the Lord Jesus to see his disciple betray him. But Peter went out and wept bitterly. And so what is the disposition of Jesus toward his penitent disciple? Tell his disciples and Peter, not singling out Peter for exclusion, but singling out Peter for inclusion in the apostolic band. Yes, he had especially sinned in denying me, but he had especially mourned over his sin. And I have a special word for Peter, a special word of absolution, a special word of restoration, a special word of recommissioning. He is my disciple still. And friend, when you sin and the devil tells you or your own heart tells you that because of your sin, you're just in God's perpetual doghouse. Remember those words. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And be assured of the forgiving grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ toward his penitent followers. And don't allow the devil to get you to wallow in your sin. But you move on from it, appropriating the forgiveness that is in Jesus, because he forgives the penitent. But then finally, in light of the resurrection, we need to rejoice as Christians that the empty tomb is proof of our eternal life. How important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to us as Christians? Well, let the scriptures tell us. Romans 4.25, he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus means you are justified. It means that as a basic, on, on the grounds of his resurrection, you have a clean slate. Because as I've said before, the resurrection, Jesus died to pay for our sins. The resurrection was the receipt. God the Father saying, I've received payment in full. Your sins are paid for. You don't have to pay for one of them. And so the resurrection is the basis of your justified status. Not only not guilty, but positively righteous in the sight of God. Not only that, Romans 6.4 says that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too should walk in newness of life. Not only is the resurrection the basis of your justification, It is the foundation of your sanctification. The power that is at work in you to continue to put your sin to death and pursue holiness and become more like Jesus, that power is nothing less than resurrection power. You have the power to change. You are not, you don't have to be stuck where you are. But there's resurrection power at work in you. 
And so it affects our sanctification and the resurrection of Jesus affects our future. As 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death by a man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, <clears throat> in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of the fact that someday your body will be resurrected, joined to your perfected spirit, so that in body and soul you will be with him forever on the new earth. If Christ had not been raised, let's end where we began. If Christ had not been raised, our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins. All who have died before us, some of our loved ones, have perished. Our preaching is vain. My life of 40-some years of preaching is a big waste, empty, useless, And we are, of all men, most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And because he lives, we will live too. So our faith is not worthless, but your faith in Jesus is your most valued possession. You are not still in your sins, but your sins have been buried in the deepest sea, put behind God's back, and as far removed as the east is from the west. And those loved ones of yours who have died trusting in Jesus have not perished, but they are in his joyful presence right now. And our preaching and our witnessing to Christ is not worthless. It is the most meaningful thing we can do on planet Earth. And we are not the most pitiable of people. We are the most enviable of people on the planet. And if you are outside of Christ... I invite you to join us even now. Let's pray, sing, and come to the supper. Thank you, Father, for raising your son and for all the glorious implications. It means everything to us, and we thank you in Jesus' name.